please call me by my true names. Do not say that I'll depart tomorrow. Even today I am still arriving. Look deeply. Every second I am arriving. To be a bud on a spring branch. To be a tiny bird with still fragile wings learning to sing in my new nest. To be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower. To be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive. In order to laugh and cry, to fear and to hope, the rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive. I am the mayfly, metamorphosing on the surface of the water. And I am the bird, which, when spring comes, arrives in time to eat the mayfly. I am the frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond. And I am the grass snake that quietly feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones. And I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands. And I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like the spring, so warm it makes the flowers bloom all over the earth. My pain is like a river of tears, so vast it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true names, so that I can hear all my cries and laughter at once, so that I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up and so the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. for our community to uh, understand Lamentations and to talk about it. Okay, yeah, and so this is, man, what week, what week is this of this Lamentations? Is, this is week two. No, but like well, the theodicy and all that, I mean, we've been doing like this. Week five. Yeah, for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, so we started having this conversation before, before a lot of stuff was even going on, and uh the theodicy conversation is really important to me. So theodicy is, um, if God is good and God is all powerful, then why is there suffering and why is there evil? It's trying to figure out that, that problem. And for a lot of us, we don't, you know, we we don't love going into the, the philosophical realms of that. Um, but I've noticed in every tragedy that I've been a part of in some way, that we do, we, we go to those places. And being able to articulate some a theoretical, satisfying perspective on suffering, it's essential if we're going to suffer well. But then we also said, uh, more importantly, is that how you see the world, your worldview, your perspective, your philosophy, your metaphysics, all of that informs then how you practically respond. Mm-hmm. 
So while theory isn't the end-all be-all, it does have a role because we naturally ask these kinds of questions and because uh, as we're, we're engaging with suffering, whatever your theory is, is going to help you form your ethics, your practices. So we need that conversation. So yeah, we've gone, I want to say this is like the sixth total week on this. Week five or six, yes. Um, and, and within this time period, we've had uh, COVID chaos. Um, we've had the, the, the racial uh, conversation come to a, a daunting yeah. culmination. Um, at least this has been the biggest part of, uh, the biggest part of my life where this has been so heavy in culture. And so this stuff is really timely for that. And there is a, a societal effect of it, right? Right. Um, and there always has been. You know, you think back to the, uh, the Black Plague. That mm-hmm. was, there was a huge conversation of suffering uh, and theodicy and all of that during the bubonic plague. And, and so there's whatever the, the form has been, people have asked this socially, They've also asked it personally, right? And it deals with both at the same time. So that's kind of the the setup for this. Last week we introduced lamentations, and so if you're listening to this and you miss the conversation on lamentations, it's probably helpful to get an idea of what's going on in the book. Um, and even if you were a part of that conversation last week or you've listened to that audio. Um, that stuff is complex, and so I would encourage you to listen to it again. Yes, it's uh, very complex. So you can continue to, to catch some of the nuances that we talked about, because we tried to cram um, a look at the whole book in like 45 minutes. Right. And that's difficult to do. So there's a lot of stuff there. Um, and what we, we started, we got into the first practice that Lamentation shows us, which is the practice of voice. And... Um, we scratched the surface of it, and today we are going to finish the conversation on that practice of voice, and we're going to show the second practice that Lamentations gives us, which is seen. So we're going to end today with two very uh, tactile ways to engage with suffering and evil that help promote a response of healing, right? And this whole thing is how do we suffer well? Well, I think Lamentations is the answer to that. Uh, but it's a difficult book and these are difficult practices. So, um, yeah, so we started with, with the idea of voice and the two things that we saw with voice is one that there's a bunch of voices, right? We Mm -hmm. called it a cacophony of voices, um, a multiplicity. And one thing we see with that is that, uh, not one voice wins out. None of the voices resolve, anything. Mm -hmm. So you're left with this plurality with no consensus. Um, But the other thing that does is it kind of says, there's no one perspective, there's no one theology, there's no one uh, uh, perspective that covers this whole thing. You need all the voices. And all the voices are never going to be fully complete. The other thing we saw with voice so you got the multiplicity of voices, but then the other thing you see with voice is that the desire for a cohesive voice that resolves the problem doesn't show up. 
in Lamentations, that's God. They're, they're yelling at God. They're begging God to, to show up and fix it and do something, and God doesn't. So you have a book in the Bible where God doesn't speak once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's a little bit rare. Uh, there are others uh, where that happens. Um, but God doesn't speak at all. And this is why Lamentations gets a pretty bad rap for uh, people going like, we d- I don't know if that should be a thing. At, at best, what people do is they go, um, yeah, this is fine. It's in the Bible, and that's fine for our emotions, but we shouldn't use this theologically. Um, those are kind of the different ways that people engage with this. I, I think they're both uh, limited. And, and I wouldn't encourage either of them. But to go f- into that conversation, why doesn't God speak? Hey, that's that's going to be a tricky journey into uncharted territory. So oh, yeah. be careful if you're going to embark on it. Um, but that's, so, that's what we're left with with voice. And so we started asking, what's the advantage of how voice is used in lamentations? And what can we learn from it? So I actually don't remember how far we went into that conversation last week. Um so is there anything that you can think of that needs recapped or explained before we jump further into voice? I would say, um, and I don't remember whether we covered these things or not, but certainly I, the idea of there being multiple voices, um, it makes me think of a woman, her name is Emily Towns, and she's a womanist theologist, and she talks about how in that theology they don't allow any one particular unified voice because they feel that each particular voice has its own experience. And I think that's mm-hmm. what you found in Lamentations, where you had the experience of the person who is the narrator who starts out, rather cold and for you know third person and then there's the voice of of daughter zion who was the 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 city of jerusalem personified as a woman and her terrible pain and her perspective as a woman whose children have been destroyed whose life has been destroyed and then you have the strong man who wanted to protect and yet he couldn't do it so he feels his helplessness so each voice adds a piece to that and yet as you say god's voice is absent in this Mm -hmm. it's almost as if saying we need to let each of these perspectives speak their own voice so that they can uh, let us know what is actually happening from all these different views. Yep. Okay. So I I think this is what we ended with. I I know we got into a conversation on the current political cultural climate, Mm -hmm. Um, but we kind of ended with this question. Hopefully we'll answer it today. Kathleen O'Connor, who has a wonderful um, commentary on the book of Lamentations, um, ask or makes this statement even one word from God would take up too much space in the intention of this book. Why? Why would one word from God take up too much space in the intention of this book? So we need to handle that. And then I want to I wanna propose a situation to you. Um, let's imagine... And, and we'll resolve this later. And, and Amy doesn't actually know where I'm going with this because I just <laughs> thought of it. Okay. Let's imagine there was a situation in which 500 young females were sexually abused by one person. Okay? If that happened, how would healing need to begin? Now, the answers are going to help us see how voice and scene works, because this is actually a real thing that happened. Oh, really? Yes. This is not a hypothetical situation. Okay. And so how does healing need to begin if that happened? Right. Right. 
Um, and so I want to use that portrayal to help us walk through some of this. And, and I'll explain that more as we go. Um, the other thing that I'll say for those of you on is that uh, some news came back to me that sometimes Tyler doesn't make sense. <laughs> and uh, here's, here's just real quick, right? Let's, let's handle this real quick. I shouldn't make sense if I'm a good teacher. Um, what would not be good is if I intentionally don't make sense because I want to show everyone that I'm better. Now, that's not okay. You ever get that vibe, shut it down, right? Uh, the other thing that would not be healthy within that is if you're not invited to further into ideas and concepts and things. Um, and if I'm not connected to you all as I'm talking about things. And here's, here's the deal. Sometimes my head get, does get ahead of me, and I don't realize that I'm, I'm uh, talking in ways that are, are unrelatable. Um, but if I ever talk over somebody, that's a problem, simply because we're here to learn together. Right. Here, but here's, here's what has to happen. Uh, I don't just know these things. I know these things because I ask the right questions. And technically, you could say this is my job to go and learn things and then share it with all of you. Right? That's one way to explain Absolutely. what a, mm -hmm. a, a teacher does. Um, and so I should be talking past a little bit, but I should be doing it in a way that helps you come along alongside of it and, and grow with me. But I'm just asking you all to do the things that I've done. And my job then becomes to make it easier for you than it was for me. So I had to put a lot of time into learning a lot of these things. I'm trying to make it easier. So you, you guys don't. Um, and that you can intake all of this without having to do the plethora of work that most of us don't enjoy. I happen to. Um, so don't get caught off guard if you feel like something doesn't make sense. That's okay. That's, uh, it's an uncomfortable space to be, but that means you're learning. And I'm learning too, right? Remember, I'm, I'm just discovering stuff and letting you in on my journey. So you're right here with me. Um, and if something doesn't make sense, you, if you have agreed to be a part of this conversation, have taken on the responsibility to ask questions. So when I say, does anybody have any questions or concerns or you want me to clear something up? That's what that's literally for. Um, and you don't have to feel stupid because I had to ask those same questions. All right. So I'm going to say that again. If there's things that happen in the context of this conversation, we'll, we'll have time at the end to elaborate on them. And, and make sure that we're all moving on the, on the road together, all right? Okay, so if God speaks, even one word from God, apparently, would take away from the intention of the book. Why? And here's what is important about this. And next week, we're going to get into how... The, the problem most people have with Lamentations is it has a weird picture of God. Yes. Next week, we're going to show you all that that's not the case. You have to look a little bit deeper, but it's there. But we do have to sit on the fact that God doesn't speak. And apparently, that's intentional. 
So we want to go like, oh, God doesn't speak. So God must be a, a, an evil, bad, mean person. Or is God doing something else? And that perspective, I think, is important within suffering. If God speaks in this poem, we lose the chance for healing. That's my take on it. And the reason why is, and, and this, is, this is not just theological, this is psychological as well, because often when we, we are in suffering, we want a, a single authoritative voice to come in and clean it up. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I've yet to read or meet a psychologist who says that's a good thing. That's always a bad thing. You don't want somebody to prematurely resolve the issue because now you don't have to do anything about it. And just look at, look at social uh, experiences of suffering, but also look at personal ones. And you see this is like our, our natural response, right? Uh, so this, this big chaos of racism happening right now. How many people are just trying to go and like, no, look, the answer is really easy. We just have to do this. And this is both sides. People on both sides are going like, no, no, this is so clear. This is so, we can solve this right now with one meme on Facebook. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, and that is, that's the attempt to try to remove the process mm-hmm. that forces transformation, that forces putting things back together, that, that forces us to avoid setting things right, justice, uh, so that we can, we can just move on without having to deal with all of the muddy, ambiguous junk in the middle of it. That's, that's the same problem going on in Lamentations. Uh, and if we get, if, if, if God speaks here, because they're looking for that, that's what, the, when they're asking God to speak, that's what they're looking for. They're looking for a resolution, um, something with authority to solve the problem. And so if God uses this uh, singular authoritative voice in the midst of their suffering, what that's going to do is it's, it's going to provoke the sufferers into what we talked about of re, a reactive response to healing. So a few weeks ago, we talked about reactive response to healing versus a proactive response. So that's kind of at the center yeah. of what we're trying to find today. Um, but if you get that voice that just cleans it all up, you don't have to do anything with the trauma. Right. Except the trauma still exists and now it's working on you without you intentionally paying attention to it. And that's a problem. Um, And so just reading through Lamentations, try to find a space and enter God's voice in there. Well, what it does is it keeps the voice of people from being able to cry out. And if voice is necessary for healing, voice is necessary for you to, to own if you enter in God's sort of cohesive voice and lamentations, it's, it's going to endanger the human voices. And if voice is necessary for you to own the experience and pay attention to it, well, something that keeps you from being able to do that, it, it, the healing won't ever happen. And so what, what happens instead of us going like, isn't it unfortunate that God doesn't speak? Man, that causes us a theological mess. Instead, we go, good thing God doesn't show up and just clean this all up for them or else they'd never heal. The missing voice is the most important voice. So I, I, I forget where I had this idea from, but I just imagine a lot of people reading Lamentations and wanting Morgan Freeman <laughs> to show up and speak with the content of a Joel Osteen sermon. Was that Tracy? <laughs> that's, 
that's what we want to happen in Lamentations. Yeah. That would fix this for us. Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen. And I think it's really important that it doesn't happen because we would miss the powerful lesson embedded in what's difficult. And if there's anything that we, we got to hear again and again and again, if, if it's easy, it's not worth doing. Yes, that's right. You, you want things to get better. You want things to grow. You want to experience transformation. It's going to be difficult. That's the Wesleyan Covenant prayer, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, take me where I got to go. And you know, I'm not going to like it, but that's probably a good thing. If I did like it, that's probably not worth anybody's time. Um, and so as we're engaging with lamentations and suffering, you got to be okay with uh, lamentations shouldn't make sense to us up front because suffering doesn't make sense. Suffering is hard. Suffering hurts. Suffering takes you to places that you don't want to go. The answers will too. Uh, and so what we're left with in Lamentations is all of these voices, voices crying out, and the one voice that they all hope will answer them and fix it is nowhere to be found. And so, yeah, either God is questionable or there's something really profound going on here that we can learn from. And I, and I think that's what's, uh, what's going on. So what's the power of voice? The power of voices first is that it empowers the sufferer. It, it, it gives them a sort of privilege in the midst of it that what has happened to them is real and uh, what has happened to them is important. Right. The other thing that voice does um, is it exposes what's wrong. Okay. And this is the part that's really, uh, really the most important in our, in our society and in our culture today is it exposes what's wrong. So I want you to compare suffering now to um, a wound, okay? So um, I often use the Black Knight from Monty Python and the Holy Grail as the best example. Um, and if you're not familiar with that, just Google that scene real quick. Uh, we'll, we'll wait for you. Um, I, should, I should just play it, but I don't know if I'm... I'm not going to do that. Um, <laughs> The guy, Black Knight, gets an arm off and he pretends like nothing. Eventually, all of his limbs are missing and he's saying it's just a flesh wound and he's still trying to go. He's, he's not paying attention to the wound and that's not going to go well. And so when we suffer, what it does is it creates a wound and what voice does is it requires us to pay attention to that wound the immediate response of crying out. Sometimes the, and the worst thing that Christians could do is they could go, no, don't ever do that. And if anybody ever tells you that, you tell them you must not actually read the Bible then. Oh, absolutely. Because it's a it's, huge part of the tradition. Sure. Um, and that immediate reaction, we're not saying that it's, it's a theologically beautiful. We're saying that it's, it's real. In order to do that, and it's helpful. Now, you hopefully you're not going to end at crying out. Hopefully that's not going to be your existence for the rest of your life. But in that moment, it's necessary. It's absolutely necessary to what's going on and being a part of the process. Because when you, when you use your voice, when you cry out, when you pay attention to the wound, it acquires you, requires you to give credence to what is happening to you. And then you and others can now attend to the wounds because you've paid attention. Uh, and so go back to if, if the suffering and lamentations gets resolved prematurely, it removes agency from the people involved that this must not be important. 
it also removes the ability to respond. You have to be able to pay attention to what's going on. If, if I get a cut on my arm and I go, oh, no, it's fine. God's got it. Everything happens for a reason. And I start using some of that language, which we already talked about with theodicy, is mm-hmm. philosophically untenable and, and not helpful at all. But if I do that, what's going to happen to the wound on my arm? It's going to fester. It's going to get infected. I'm going to end up having to get my arm amputated. Right. Or it's <laughs> yeah, going to, I'm not going to be able to use blood it. Blood poisoning. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's going to atrophy. And no, it, I get a cut on my arm. My first thing is to go, this hurts. I need help. Oh, now, now we can, now we can fix it. Yes. Now we can solve the problem. Now we can heal the suffering. Now we can heal the wound. We want everything to be sunshine and butterflies all the time. And I get that. I hope that it is. And I hope one day there is no suffering in the world. I'm not saying suffering is good. I'm saying it's real and we have to deal with it appropriately. Right. Um, right. And, and if you don't, if you don't use voice, you're going to eliminate the possibility of healing and you're going to have these fake resolutions. And, and this is what we're talking about with uh, reactive responses versus proactive responses. So uh, here's a w- way I'd phrase this as far as the missing voice of God. It, is God actually, in Lamentations, is God actually collectively working with the people to refuse to pretend that everything's okay. So what seems like wailing and what seems like the absence of God might actually just be everyone, including God, refusing to lie about what's gone on. Yeah. If that's the case, God's missing voice is no longer a theological problem. It's actually a theological solution that God's actually responding the way Everyone needs God to respond, which is by not fixing it right now, forcing us to pay attention and, and, and allowing us to embrace what that, what that do, does to us. And so when we experience suffering, our invitation is to begin there with voice by confronting reality rather than obscuring it. That, that, that's, the, that's the first component of voice that is important. Uh, can, I'm going to read a quote from Kathleen O'Connor on this. Oh, good. So this is, uh, this is from uh, what Kathleen O'Connor says about it. The voices of lamentations urge readers to face suffering, to speak of it, to be dangerous proclaimers of the truth so that nations, families, and individuals prefer to repress. They invite us to honor the pain muffled in our hearts, overlooked in our society, and crying for our attention in other parts of the world. In this way, lamentations can shelter the tears of the world. That's what uh, O'Connor says about how voice is used in this book and why yeah. it's so important. Yeah. Um, and so with voice real quick, uh, the, the first thing that we have to, to do here is go, how does it promote proactive versus reactive? So I want to actually give us some, some imagery. Okay. So um, Judith Herman uses this phrase. She says, the typical response to atrocity is to banish them from consciousness. All right? Mm-hmm. That's that's why we want God to show up and fix it. Mm-hmm. It's because we want to banish this. We want to pretend like this didn't exist. And that's that's reactive response to uh, suffering. Um, and we had a conversation on conflict a couple months ago where we said, you know, when conflict happens, it's not bad, but you can choose to respond with apathy 
and say, I just don't care. You can choose to respond with ignorance and say, I'm just going to pretend this didn't happen. Or you can choose to respond with imagination in which you, you find the healing response with your voice and nothing will ever be the same. That's a beautiful thing. Um, but the other component of this that's important is when, when you use voice, so let's bring this into communication theory, you're using direct communication. Right. And I will always, always, always adhere to the fact that direct communication is so important. Direct communication is about speaking what is actually there. Yeah. That's what voice is. You're saying, this is, this is what this is like. This is what I'm experiencing. Um, this is how I feel. This is what's going on. And I'm not going to try to hide it. I'm going to be honest about it. That's direct communication. That's our invitation here. The other choice is to respond reactively. Um, and there's four main ways that we do this. And everybody responds differently. But these are all reactive. The first one is suppression, where we, we kind of push it down. We don't really bring it up. Uh, we, we, we want to try to minimize its effects in our life. And I want you to, to do all these with, like, you get a wound, you get a big giant cut on your arm. I'm going to suppress it. I'm just going to like, oh, nope, everything, we're good. We're good. The second one is revenge. So you get the cut on your arm and you go, well, now I'm going to cut you. And now I feel mm -hmm. better. Yeah. Doesn't do anything about the cut on your arm. Now we're both wounded. Yep. Uh, but that's a typical response where people go, if I can, if I can lash out on somebody else, I'll feel better. Mm -hmm. And now I don't have to deal with this thing. Um, but that's reactive. Blame is a third one. And this is usually with projection where something happens to us. And if we can point our finger at somebody else or someone else, then we don't have to deal with what's going on here. And um, there's the line that those who focus on the junk of others are usually the ones who haven't dealt with their own junk. Yeah. Yeah. You haven't dealt with your own wounds, and so you're okay pointing at the wounds of everybody else. That's reactive. And then the last one is avoidance, which uh, Brene Brown talks about how uh, something happens to us and our response is we're going to keep the car in the garage. We're just not, we're not even going to try to go out and do anything anymore. We're just going to try to protect ourselves from here on out. Yeah. Also not helpful. Proactive, on the other hand, when you get wounded, when you suffer, it takes you into new territory. And we've used this image of how a landscape gets removed and you have to find your way on a new landscape. And now that wound is a part of your flesh and you have to act based on what has happened. And so the proactive response is to name it, own it, see it, so that you can find healing. That's voice. You have to start there. You have to start by paying attention, being honest about it, and now things can, can move on. And, and one thing that I'll clarify here with wounds is that responding well to a, a wound to suffering mm -hmm. does not mean the wound's going to go away. But if you do it correctly, the wound will become a scar. It's always going to be a part of your body. And anybody who's suffered, you know that those things don't disappear, but they get retold and, and they become a different part of your story. They don't hold you prisoner. Yeah. Right. They, they liberate you into a new way of existence. Um, but we can't pretend that if you, oh, if we, if we properly respond to suffering, then the wounds will disappear. No, nope. mm -hmm. 
Nope, they're embedded in your flesh, and you have you have to deal with that. So that's voice, um, and I know I've just mostly been going. So, well, let's go this way of what did I fail to bring up? What are things that you think are important that weren't said? Um, I think that one thing that it maybe kind of will segue into seeing when you talk about suppressing things or repressing things, in Lamentations, it sounds as if God is behaving like an abusive husband or you know some kind of an abuser. And usually in that circumstance, what a person would do would be to hide, to pretend, to not look. And what I think is faithful here, especially with daughter Zion, she does not hide what she feels from God. Like if, if you're afraid of someone, you're going to pretend, you know, you're going to try to keep them calm. But she doesn't. She cries out against it. She rails her fists and she says, no, I am drawing attention to what you have done here. It breaks that cycle. And, and it also then she, she accuses him of these things, but then she also calls on him to act. And it's like she's trusting that he will. So it's almost like yeah. a love poem where two people are fighting. And yet, because she's faithful to him, it's when you don't love that you don't fight anymore or when you're afraid that you don't say anything yeah. but because she's brave and all the people in the story are brave then they come out and they confront God with this thing and yet he's not speaking yet he's allowing them to kind of say what they need to say and to be seen so I think that to segue into that then a lot of times people who are oppressed or powerless either aren't allowed to be seen mm. um, you think of the back stairs in a house so that the maids can go up and down in the slave quarters mm. or also they don't want to be seen because they're trying not to draw attention to themselves yeah. and in this case they are drawing attention they are saying look at us God see what you have done why are you not fixing it? Yeah. The reason that God's not abusive, though, though that image is definitely there, is uh, because the abusive response would be to silence. And yeah. God doesn't silence. Yes. Yeah. No, exactly. Uh, He's not and, silencing. And He's allowing them to say. I think God offering a premature resolution would be a way to silence. Sure, it would be. Right. It'd be like stomping on their voice and saying, well, I know what's going on here. I'm going to tell you how you feel mm -hmm. about it, and I'm just going to fix it the way I want it fixed. So there's actually, there's three concepts that I write about with this, if we were to get into more detail, and um, I won't cover them all right now, but to what you're saying, this is actually really important within relationships of suffering and even social suffering. Um, there's something called ego depletion, Mm -hmm. And ego depletion is when you've been interacted with in such a way that you sort of lose your, your autonomy yeah. to make decisions. Yep. So ego depletion. Um, and then there's something called um, epistemic injustice, where you do not allow people to have access to shared knowledge mm -hmm. so that they, okay. they, they can't uh, conjoin together and be empowered to deal with things. Sure, the way slaves weren't allowed to read or write. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but that goes even further. Um, if sexual harassment's not a law, you are limited in the access that you have to the pool of knowledge of what's going on to you. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's an example too of mm -hmm. uh, epistemic injustice. Um, but why this is important is the, the third thing when this is, this is the most clear one is what's called the spiral of silence. And this is a theory by Elizabeth Newman Reed. Okay. Um, and what the spiral of silence is, is a way to, especially when you're suffering, to think that you are somehow worse or unpopular within opinion. Right. And so you keep quiet. Right. And what all of these things do 
so think of epistemic injustice. I, I don't allow you um, access to the pool of knowledge, so you don't get to know, and this is also true of slavery. Um, and unfortunately, slavery is a great example of all of these. Yeah. Um, you don't know that your neighbor a mile away is feeling the exact same way. Right. And again, this is direct communication. And isolation there mm-hmm. of, the, of people. There's sure. been studies done on uh, sort of revolutionary experiences where the revolution didn't start until somebody who was feeling a certain way against a tyrant knew that their neighbor felt the same way. Because when they don't know that, they think, oh, I'm the weird one. I'm not right. going to say anything. I'm not going to disrupt this. It's too this. dangerous to speak. But mm-hmm. if the knowledge gets shared, and this is something that social media does do, it shares knowledge. Now you go like, oh, I'm not the only one. Yeah, yeah let's yeah. let's do something about this. Or the Me Too movement, you can mm-hmm. say. You know, there's a case where yeah. people started to speak up and they're like, oh, yes, I had that experience as well. Yes, and it's empowering. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, the, the spiral of silence, what it says is that somebody who is suffering will continue to stay silent. And that's voice. Yeah. That's why voice is so important, because as soon as you have voice, you're given power. And right. when you suffer, the first thing that is removed is your power. Absolutely. And if nothing is there to change that, you will continue to suffer. Right. Or if right. someone has a uh, vested interest in you not having that power, which in this case we do not see. You know, right. they may feel that way about the way they feel that God is responding to them. But what we actually see is God allowing them to have that voice and to talk about how we each feel. They each feel about the situation. Exactly. So the 500 young females. Mm-hmm. Okay, back to this. This actually happened. Okay. Um, and if anybody knows anything about uh, Dr. Larry Nasser and what happened with a lot of Olympians and gymnasts. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so several people, This and this was dates back to 1997, uh, several people had said something like that. Mm-hmm. He, he sexually abused me while he was working on me. And they all got shut up and they were all forced to think that their experience was solitary and it was wrong. And so you had just starting from 1997, let's go up to 2015. You had hundreds of young women going, this only happened to me because they don't, they were not given right to that shared knowledge Mm -hmm. with other, other gymnasts. This only happened to me and I'm wrong for it. Wow, that is just diabolical. But it's about voice. Right. Right? And and then in 2015, there was a young woman uh, who brought it up, and she was silent. So far as she was removed, basically, there's debate on whether she was actually removed, but it appears that she was removed from the Olympic team because she said this. Mm-hmm. And what's her response? She She quits. She goes back. She loses all of her relationships because she's told, I had a singular experience and I'm wrong for it. Mm -hmm. Her voice was taken away. All right. Then what happened is uh, a newspaper in Indianapolis started figuring this out and they wrote a story about it. They published the story. And what do the people that are affiliated with this doctor and the organization do? They try to shut it down. They try to take away the voice. But as soon as it got out, you had all of these women start going like, oh, that happened to me. Mm-hmm. That happened to me. That same guy, not, not a different guy, the same guy. Mm-hmm. That same thing, exact same thing that you just wrote about happened to me. And all of a sudden, all of them started coming forward. And you get to this point where eventually it leads to this guy uh, being indicted. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
there's this really powerful moment over several days where over a hundred of these women came to the courtroom and they were all given a chance to uh, share their story in front of him. Oh yeah. What is going on? And we watch, you watch it and you're like, wow, that's powerful. No, Mm -hmm. what's going on? Mm -hmm. Voice. Yep. Voice. That's what's happening. That's so important. And at that point, now they can begin healing. Yes. But something else is going on too. And that's practice number two. Right. Which is seeing. So uh, Kathleen O'Connor talks about this as uh, mirrored pain. So daughter Zion, she's yearning for a comforter. She's yearning for someone to see her. Nobody really does. But once her voice is honored, this being seen is now possible. So... um, Mm -hmm. Um, Judith Herman writes this, the first principle of recovery is the empowerment of the survivor. She must be the author and arbiter of her own recovery. Others may offer advice, but not cure. Many benevolent and well-intentioned attempts to assist the survivor flounder because this fundamental principle is not observed. The fundamental principle being voice. Right. But then Herman continues and says, but recovery can take place only within the context of relationships. It cannot occur in isolation. And what she's saying is you begin with a voice, but the voice allows something else to happen, which is seen. Yeah. So God in Lamentations does not appear to hear the cry. And I'm using that word intentionally. It doesn't appear to. Right. Next week, we're going to find out that God actually does. And so daughter Zion needs a witness and, and, and having a witness, having somebody see her and join her is going to compel healing. Um, now we're going to find out when you read it, you realize in chapter one, the, the narrator is objective reporter sitting mm-hmm. with the microphone. Here's the, this detail happened then this thing happened and then just reporting the facts here. And then you get to chapter two and it's like the narrator is like, I can't. I can't yeah, do this anymore. Yeah. And and it's like the narrator is reporting the news and then puts the microphone down and says, I've had enough. I, I'm going to go help this woman. And, and the narrator joins her. And we find out that, uh, you know, daughter Zion saying, has anyone seen suffering like my suffering? And then the narrator shows up and says, I, I have seen your suffering. Yeah. And then the strong man says, I too have seen this affliction. And people, they start seeing this. So seeing is the second practice. And um, if if we're trying to go like, and how does this work? Well, it's empathy and compassion. So the poem that you shared, that's about seeing. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Empathy and and empathy is a sort of cliche word at this point. I think it gets thrown around a lot without us understanding what it is. So I'm going to define it. Empathy is uh, seeing, feeling and experience the world as if you are that person. Right. And as literally as possible, as humanly possible, it's not completely possible, but as, as literally as you can, you try to enter their world. That's empathy. But then you also got to add compassion to that. And compassion is just Latin, calm, with, passion, mm-hmm. suffer, suffer with. Um, and again, I think people talking about compassion, you hear it all the time. But when you're, when you're talking about compassion, you're saying, I, I'm going to not just see and, and experience and feel your suffering. I'm going to join you in it and take it on as if it is my own. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of the Lilla Watson quote uh, where she says, if you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, 
then let us work together. Yeah. And so the uh, MLK actually, I know everybody's quoting Martin Luther King right now, but uh, I'd like to say that I've studied MLK enough that I have some, <laughs> some sort of credence to talk about him. Um, but he actually really focuses on this process. And in a couple of different speeches, he uses this metaphor of the beggar in the ditch. And he's talking oh, about right. the Jericho Road. I was just thinking about that. Mm-hmm. And he said, you don't need to flip that. a coin to the beggar. You, we mm-hmm. need to transform the Jericho Road. And that's going to begin by don't flip a coin. Go down into the ditch right. with, with the person like the Samaritan did. Mm-hmm. And both of you walk out together. Yeah. It's not, it's not try to try to yell for the person like, come on, you can get out of the ditch. It's no, go into the ditch, be like them. And now you both will have a better chance. Empower their voice, see them. And now both of you with your shared power are more likely to come out of the ditch together. And that's empathy and compassion, right? Uh, So one thing that's happening is when somebody cries out, now we can all see it. We go, oh, I hear that voice. I see the wound. Yeah. Now we have the possibility of humanizing that person. But once the voice happens, and the voice has to be first, somehow it doesn't necessarily mean literal verbalization, but somehow the voice has to happen first. And what that allows is a communal response to suffering. And that's the only way you're going to get to healing. Just voice by itself is not going to take you, mm-hmm. uh, not going to take you to um, healing. And so when a, when a, fellow subject mirrors the pain and that's why O'Connor says mirrored pain yeah that is not going to resolve the wounds but what that is going to do is it's going to reflect the narrator now can reflect daughter Zion's story to her that she can barely speak and it gives language back to the sufferer whose world has collapsed right and, and then, therefore, it breeds new life. It restores the sufferer to relationship, all psychologically things that we know are, are necessary. Mm-hmm. But being seen allows the person who suffered to see again. Yeah. So they're, they're sort of brought out of the shadows uh, by being empowered. And that's not something they could have done on their own. And so seeing is, is absolutely essential and it creates this trust. It creates this safety through empathy and, and compassion and it releases them from what they can't overcome alone. What this means is that suffering is, is corporate. Oh, right. It okay. has to happen amongst one another. Um, so any thoughts? I, I know I'm just going today. I apologize, <laughs> but th- this is like this is the stuff that I've yeah. been I've been well, you've been doing so much us. of this. So of course you wanted to to, yeah. to speak it. And I think when you talk about voice and seeing, the person can cry out, but if nobody's paying any attention. Yep. Um, and I was going to kind of ask you the question. So we hear the voices and lamentations, kind of switching back and forth then between this individual voice and then they come together in collective voices. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that we kind of need to see our own? pain before we can empathize it's like if you have suppressed that wound Mm -hmm. and then you see someone else with a wound it's like well i sucked it up you can too and it becomes almost cruel whereas if you're willing to admit yeah i know how that feels i've had this and while i can't compare mine to you exactly we have a shared experience here so that maybe that helps to um empower Mm -hmm. the other person too to say we have a shared experience here and then it becomes more of a collective feeling and more of perhaps a, a connection between the people. Well, so biologically, physiologically, doing empathy requires you to 
if you're going to experience somebody else's pain, you have sure. to be able to find that pain you in yourself. You have to know what that feels like. So who pretend not pretend like you don't? <laughs> who are the people who give rubbish responses to other people's suffering? Mm-hmm. The people who haven't dealt with their own. Yeah. I, like you and, were saying. And mm-hmm. I don't mean to be judgmental, but I can stand at a funeral home and watch people interacting with uh, the, the, the person who just had a member of their life die. And I can tell you, like, that person probably needs therapy. That person hasn't dealt with their own junk. Mm-hmm. That person's trying to smooth this over because they just they can't go there themselves. Yeah. And it's the people who just go up and, like, weep and wrap their arms around a person. I'm like, yeah, they get it. They get it. And now healing's more likely. Mm-hmm. There's something really powerful about allowing somebody's voice to be real and then seeing that with them and letting them know that they're seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and it catalyzes the process that we need to, to suffer well. Healing heal, healing's now li- likely. Healing's now possible b- with voice and with seeing. Um, but it, it, it has to be collective. And, and we can't miss that part. Now, this, this takes on a lot of implications. Um, one thing that um, O'Connor talks about is how Lamentations beckons us outwards towards the world. And she even uses this line that's awesome. She says, we become a prayer for the wounds of the world when we learn how to see and respond to voices. Uh, and, and if you see correctly, it forces you to respond to pain. And, and so then, then you take, start taking on this nuance of resisting suffering with human agency and em- embracing solidarity for healing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we become people of lamentations who know how to suffer well, we're able to present all that prevents human flourishing uh, and, and respond towards wholeness. So we can bring these things before God and say, this isn't okay. And now that we've seen them, now we get to do something about them. Yeah. And, uh, there's two, there's two things we have to be really careful of with seeing, and I want to bring those up. But first, I, I want to offer, I'm going to bring this up within the uh, relational and societal clashing we've had. Okay. And I think I brought this up last week. Correct me if I did. Never hurts to hear it again. But when, is there a difference between rioting and protesting? Yeah, there is. Mm-hmm. And there needs to be continued conversation for what we what we do uh to to actually heal things and we know that rioting and protesting themselves protesting even done really well isn't going to heal the thing it's going to make healing possible right right? but here's what has to has to be said when that happens you are getting an existential and emotional response to perceived suffering right they're crying out yes let them have their voice. That doesn't mean you have to condone how this is happening, right? If, if translate it more personally, if, if a, a mother watches her child die and she starts breaking things, mm-hmm. we're not going to go like in that practice, that pattern, you should take that with you for the rest of your life. And cause that's a good thing. We would go, well, shoot, that's, mm, we're going to have to clean that up now. We're going to have to fix that. But of course she's doing that. Yeah, that's, absolutely. That's voice. And when we we want to try to stop voice, and sometimes with good intentions. Sure, it makes us uncomfortable. 
Yes, it, it, it makes us uncomfortable, but we also, we can, when we don't have the existential experience, that's why you have to empathize. When we yeah, don't have the exactly. existential experience, we can stop and we can go like, oh, but I can see that's not the solution. Right. But and that's so I'm going to try to talk experienced sense. It. Mm-hmm. How are you going to talk sense to somebody who feels like their entire world just collapsed? Exactly. It's part of the voice. It doesn't mean that we need to condone it. Mm-hmm. it, it and it doesn't mean that it's a tantrum either. It's a real response to their life being taken away. Absolutely. And, and this is on in, in any issue. And you can, you can find this within Nazi Germany. You can find this within uh, the, the racial protests that are happening now. You can find this in how law enforcement are, are responding. It's, it's an argument based on what's called pathos. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's logos, ethos, and pathos. They're all fair game. You can reason using all of them. It doesn't mean that that needs to be the only reason you ever use indefinitely. <laughs> exactly. But it's in, within the context of voice, it's important and allow it to be there. But let's go back into uh, the, the Olympic gymnast situation. What happened when the voice got heard by a journalist and they wrote an article about it? What happened to that woman? She got seen. Mm-hmm. And then when the prosecutor... Uh, and, and, and when some of the other uh, judicial people involved in the case sat down with the victims and the survivors and said, tell me about it. What's happening? They're honoring voice and they're seeing the person yeah. and they enter into it with it. And then what happens when you have a hundred some young females in a courtroom all sharing their story collectively? They're seeing each other. Yeah. So it's the process of, of, of allowing voice to emerge and then responding to it by seeing it right that's what we're talking about here and you can translate this i believe you can translate this into any situation right um and and so think of a place where there's wounds and you know let's go back to the black knight the arm gets caught off what he needs to say is like my arm's off Oh my gosh, what am yeah, I going to do? Yeah. And then somebody else comes and says, let me help you. Right. I imagine this is really terrible. What do we, how do we, how do we, how do we fix this? Well, let's, let's get you something you need to yell about the, yeah, the, no, that was, that was absolutely fair. Um, now what do we do here? What do we do? And we walk with them through the journey that that's what Lamentations is showing it us. It is, but there's a culture and especially I think among males perhaps and especially young males where they Uh-oh. don't believe in that whole, and, and you're a football coach, I'm sure you see this, where the guy's injured and he's like, oh no, I can keep on playing. You know, and it's like, how do you help people to see that there's a time when it is okay to say, mm. hey, I'm wounded right here. Um, and sometimes, or they may think, well, it's, they think it's a flesh wound. They're like, well, it really is just a flesh wound and it's not, mm-hmm. but they don't want to, they, they think, well, yeah, but I only have this cut, that person's got a broken leg, mm-hmm. you know, how do you, how do you recognize yeah. the fact that all suffering is suffering? There is times when you definitely need to focus on a greater suffering, you know, but then we have to hear all the voices as well. Yeah. And how do we overcome that idea that, you know, it's, it's wrong to admit that you're suffering. Never compare suffering. Right. First rule. I don't get to decide whether somebody else is suffering is true or not. Yeah. Not my job because I'm not them. So somebody tells me they're suffering. All right. Voice. See, we'll do it. Now we can get to a place of relational trust work and be like, now listen, that's not actually a wound. Yeah. Or, or, okay. But no, we have, now we have to, we've healed the wound. We, we've covered it. It's bandaged. Yeah. Now we have to go do this thing. There's also room in relationships of trust. Yes. To not allow a handicap to exist permanently. Yeah. Uh, 
if you don't have that relationship of trust, shut your mouth, sit down. Mm-hmm. It's not your job. Now, for me, I can only say this for me, I am fine with going, I'm going to have a limited response of that, that emotional appeal and voice when I'm wounded. That's how I grieve. Right. So I'm what's called an instrumental griever. Where um, I like how you always have words for things. It really yeah. is helpful. <laughs> okay, tell us what an instrumental so griever it, is. It, uh, instrumental griever is the person who, when, they're, when they experience suffering, they have to do things okay. in order to deal with the pain. Right. That's how I grieve. Mm-hmm. Other people are um, intuitive grievers where they have to sit with it. And this honestly, this happens when like a couple suffers together Mm -hmm. and the one who's an intuitive griever, which is stereotypically the woman, but not always, I've seen it the other way around too, says to the instrumental griever, why aren't you, why aren't you letting this affect you? Why aren't you grieving? And the the other, no, I am, but it doesn't look like yours. Yeah. Um, And so I'm willing to go like, okay, I'm going to focus on the transformation here. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be different as a response to this. And I'm okay with that. I can't hold people at standard though. I need to allow them to suffer and, and use their voice the way they need to in that moment. And right. if I have trust with them, I might try to help them right. to continue to move through the grieving cycle um, and the grieving process. But there are, there are two, there are two really scary things though with, with seeing is on one hand, it's possible to see while still keeping the person silent. Oh, sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you see this a lot where there's a power structure in play. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't use that word lightly. Um, I think, again, the word power and social justice and all of that is thrown around way too nonchalantly. But if we were to define power as the ability to uh, control the action someone else takes. So right. a parent has power over their children. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 Somebody in the government has power over people. Power is a real thing. We don't have to act like it's not a real thing. I think that some one side of the political issue abuses the word a little bit. But I can respond to somebody's voice by not actually allowing them to have that voice. Yeah. And it's a way to go, look, I checked off the box, but I also get to make sure that this doesn't change. So you go, the person's in the shadows of suffering and you go, ah, yes, I see you are in the shadows of suffering. And then they stay in the shadows of suffering. Mm -hmm. Um, So the word justice, and again, I, I didn't know social justice warriors were a thing. I just know that social justice is like a theological concept that's been a part of the church for the last 2000 years. Sure. But I, I used the word social justice once and, uh, mm-hmm. this, this very like right wing reactionary conservative person came up to me and was like, you're not allowed to do that because that's this left, this liberal agenda. And I was like, I didn't even know that was a thing. Uh, <laughs> but all of these, uh, theologians throughout ch- church history, like John Wesley used oh. the phrase, and I don't think they meant what you just said. <laughs> so I don't know who hijacked this term somewhere, but social justice is yeah, a thing. Yeah. But ju- justice just means setting things right. Sure. Uh, All throughout the Bible, things, it talks about justice and God's justice. And, and, yeah, it, putting right. things back together, right. making mm-hmm. things uh, healing, you could even say within that. Uh, and so if you're going to use your voice, it has to be in a way that empowers the person, not yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. And 
if you do have, and let's say you haven't suffered and they have, and you've heard their voice, you have power over them because of the spiral of silence and, and things that psychologically happen to somebody when they suffer. And if the narrator notice that we have never said the narrator speaks for the woman, he never speaks for her. He speaks with her about her Mm -hmm. and empowers the voice. He gets rid of his power that he had as objective observer and hands it to her. And so if you're not doing that, then you're not seeing and you're not hearing and none of this is happening. Mm -hmm. The other really dangerous thing. So that's one. And I, I breezed through that a little too quickly. Um, and, and O'Connor does talk about that where lament is a form of resistance. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and she uses that in the context of like, we need public lament because it, creates collective work that that changes things justice right Mm -hmm. she does have a quote i wanted to read the tears of lamentations are an expression of resistance to the world's arrangements that give watery birth to hope i don't know what to do with that i just like it it's amazing imagery yeah Yeah, i like it uh a, a resistance to the world's arrangements and the tears give watery birth to hope yeah i like that but so we have to be really careful about speaking for we also have to be really careful about speaking poorly. And uh, this one's more, so speaking for is more likely to happen on, on a societal level, but also happens interpersonally. Mm-hmm. Speaking poorly, it could happen societally, but we see this mostly in relationships. And it's that sentimentalizing that we do. Oh, sure. When we interact with somebody's uh, suffering and we want to uh, trivialize it and give like, belittling statements and actions. Mm-hmm. Um, but remember, not only does the, the narrator never speak for the woman, uh, for daughter Zion, he also, the narrator doesn't try to take over the pain or uh, reinterpret it mm-hmm. or impose some sort of perspective that's going to diminish her voice. Right. And none of that happens. And, and when we say things like, it's all right, Everything happens for a reason. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, let go and let God. <laughs> uh, when we say things like that, we're trying to reinterpret their voice in a way that we think is going to help them. Mm-hmm. It actually might just be so that we don't have to be honest about it. Um, and so speaking poorly, that's not seen. And we have to, we have to be, you know, the, the thing that I'm, I would propose in doing this is that we need to be narrators. And that's not just from Lamentations, that's also from Exodus, because there's this whole thing in the book of Exodus where when Israel's at their darkest moments, Mm -hmm. there's no dialogue, and Exodus is built on dialogue. Yeah. Except for these moments where it's silent, and the only way we find out what God is doing and and the experience of Israel is the narrator. Mm -hmm. And our invitation, if things are going to change, is to be narrators. But you can't do that by speaking for the suffering. And you can't do that by just sentimentalizing uh, the suffering. And uh, the way that if you're going to see, practice seeing, it's about embracing the incomprehensible mystery that this person is experiencing. And do not impale them with good intentions doesn't work right and i love that imagery it's not just like try to say the right thing and try to say nice things no you're impaling them with your good intentions and that's not helpful it diminishes the voice yeah and so you are not seeing 
Um, there's a quote. Can I read this from uh, Nicholas uh, Wolsteroff? Um, I know you've you've seen this before. I'm going to read this quote, and and then we'll we'll start wrapping up. This is from his book called uh, Lament for a Son, and this explains how seeing should should work. Okay, but please don't say it's not really so bad, because it is. Death is awful, demonic. If you think your task as comforter is to tell me that really, all things considered, it's not so bad, then you do not sit with me in my grief, but you place yourself off in the distance away from me. Over there, you are no help. What I need to hear from you is that you recognize how painful it is. I need to hear from you that you are with me in my desperation. To comfort me, you have to come close. Come sit beside me on my morning bench. That's what that has to look like. So do we want to open up for questions? I don't see any comments written. Um, or do you have anything that you want to add to the conversation here? Um, no, I think that pretty much, I mean, because you talked about how we need to be able to see one another and uh, speak, and I guess that was the only last question that I had written down here for myself was, what can we do to see and allow suffering within our community in order to allow people to speak? But you kind of said, mm. you know, being careful about not speaking poorly and making sure that when you speak that you're, you're not uh, yeah. you know, imposing your own idea upon it. So. so the sort of recap is, you know, <laughs> voice yeah. and seeing, reactive versus proactive, mm -hmm. don't speak for, um, and don't speak poorly. Yeah. Those are the things that we got to hold if, if we're going to um, suffer well and if we're going to properly respond to suffering in a way that actually promotes healing. Um, yep. And so those are the things that I challenge us to sit with. Now, there's one more very practical thing that's going to come up uh, next week. And um, our last task of Lamentations is to see if we can find God in this book. Okay. Because on the surface, it looks like we cannot. Yeah. And, you know, spoiler alert, you can. Um, and uh, it's actually this last part of finding God in Lamentations that has been for me, uh, it's catalyzed me to go, no, 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 no. We don't have to neglect this book. We don't have to diminish this book or just be uncomfortable with it. We need this book because, whoa, this is amazing. Yeah, this is important. So we're going to dive into that <clears throat> next week. Are, are there any questions from those of you listening? Um, anything that I can clear up? Any ideas that have spawned in your imagination that you want to share? Um, you can use the chat or, or you can go ahead and say any of those things. Anything from our guest audience? Somebody did say something here. Is that from Tracy? I can't read that far yep. away. My Tracy eyes York too says, old. in chapter three, there's a line that says, although the Lord causes grief, he will have compassion. Um, and 
I don't recall exactly what the verse is. I want to say that you're referring to chapter 3, verse 33, which is a, a paramount verse uh, kind of centered in the middle of the book. Okay. Um, so yeah, 3, verse 33. Uh, and I had said last week that chapter 3, verse 33 is the only theocidal uh, depiction we get in Lamentations. It's the only place where we're kind of given a picture of how do we work with God within uh, suffering? And what we see that's difficult about it is on the one hand, it is like, uh, wait, God, God does cause this, but then God doesn't cause this or God still help. Well, what is, what is this picture? Mm -hmm. And part of that Tracy is the desperation of hope. And you see this all throughout lamentations is they're constantly going like, but what if, what if God's going to do something here? What, what, if, what if God is going to answer us? What if God's going to put this all back together? And there is this understanding that if God is faithful to who God has said God has been, then this needs to happen or else God is unfaithful. And, and so I think part of it is trying to capture the difficulty of God's character, um, especially within suffering, right? But then also part of it is going... We need God to do this, and we're actually going to challenge God that you better do something here. Mm -hmm. And that's actually how the how the book ends. Yeah. the The last couple of verses in Lamentations five are are sort of um, like, God, we need you too, and we kind of hope will you uh, restore us? Yeah, probably not. Book ends. That's it. <laughs> but that that's that's the tension that you see within the midst of that suffering, and I think. Uh, psychologically, that's helpful. However, this question of God, are you going to show up? Are you going to have this compassion? Um, they actually find the answer. The answer is hidden right there Not in those where pages. They expect it, which seems to happen so often in the text, where God yes. shows up in the person that you don't expect. Mm -hmm. Midwives, for example, yes. Jethro. I can think of several occasions. Uh, and, and well, and so I think it's fair to say that this verse that you're bringing up, Tracy, they're given an answer, but the answer is not obvious. You have to look for it. And that's where I had said initially when we started Lamentations of this requires diligence and patience and care, yeah. because when you do, it, it, you unlock so much more than just a simple reading of the text. And I think this is true about every text in the Bible. Um, I, I, let's not open that can of worms right now, but <laughs> how long do we have? <laughs> you have to read this well, and I, and I hate to offer a hard standard for it. You have to read the text. Well, you have to read it carefully. You have to pay attention. You, you have to interact with its difficulty because if we want this very simple, mindless, uh, interaction with divine revelation, it's going to be hard. It's it's and it's it's on one hand it is simple. There's stuff that's like oh that's just that's an easy thing. But then there's always more under it, and there's more under it. And it's what the rabbis yeah. talk about with the text is like a gym, and you have to turn it, and the light will refract differently, and you can keep doing it and have this infinite way of engaging with it. You're never mm -hmm. done. Mm -hmm. Anybody, I am getting into this a little bit. Oh. Anybody who tells you that they have that verse figured out, or here's the easy answer to that parable, mm -hmm. or um, here's, here's the simple message of what this thing means. 
I, I'm not allowed to swear on here, am no, I? No, you're not. Um, okay. <laughs> That's rubbish. That's a good word. That is absolute rubbish. And not only is that a poor way of engaging with the text, it's antithetical to how the text and living tradition is supposed to work in the first place. Don't accept that. Never accept that. I have something to add. Go ahead. All right. Because when you talk about uh, reading the text in a simple way and understanding the layers, for one thing, I mean, you see a comparison in chapter three to Psalm 23, which is this comforting thing based, and it's like they almost parallel one another, where one is a comforting thing and one is actually talking the opposite way. And O'Connor brought up in her book, which I know you didn't really go into, but there was this whole thing in Isaiah where almost God answers this. But you have to understand Mm -hmm. Isaiah in order to understand Lamentations, and you have to understand Psalms to understand Lamentations, and back and forth, Mm -hmm. where it's like, in order to understand one piece of this text, you often have to understand what's going on in other books and other contexts, so that you can see the whole picture, and that just takes forever For example, when I said, uh, is God going to be faithful? That seems to be what they're asking. Right. Well, faithful to what? Right. Do you know the promises that God gave when suffering happens? Because it's in Exodus chapter 6 and Exodus chapter Mm 4. It's all connected. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you have to be able to interact with this whole thing. Right. There's imagery that, that and, tears apart Genesis. There's images that tears apart Exodus. And th- but and this is where we can get into, you know, sort of the pretentious talking over people. If you're not there right now, that's okay. Sure. But don't stop. Keep learning it. Mm-hmm. Get there. It's so fascinating. It's like, but, and again, like you talk, if you don't know that those things are in the scriptures somewhere, then you're not going to look for them. Right. You need to know. Someone's got to tell you. And as long as we are dependent on sound bites and Facebook memes and terribly informed voices that have more of a political or organizational agenda than a true desire to understand the text, mm-hmm. you're not going to get there. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how many times I've heard somebody say like, well, I don't, I don't need to interpret God's word. I just, well, but everything you've told me is something that your pastor who instead of having any sort of educational interaction with the tech just says the Lord spoke to me. And so I know these things. I don't know how you're using that as your basis to interact with an ancient tradition. Well, and I'm not saying that you need a lot of education in order to do those things. I'm Mm -hmm. saying that you need diligence. Yeah. The same way that you have to, if you're going to read poetry, well, you have to read with care. And anybody can do it, but it takes yeah. an effort. Yeah. Okay, yeah. We, so we got one here. I think the words, the Lord causes grief is a hard thing to swallow for some and a way to keep people obedient for others. Can you explain this more? I know mm. you've touched on it before, yet the character of God is defined by so many uh, that you will be gotten... I'm not sure what that last part means. I might be reading it poorly. Um, but yes, yeah, so the, the issue here is uh, there are some theodicies that explain that um, how, do we, how do we maintain God's power and God's goodness uh, in order to explain suffering? Well, God causes it. Therefore, God can still be all-powerful mm-hmm. if God is the, the origin of all of this. And that's important if God's going to be God and going to be transcendent. However, that also means that God is kind of abusive and potentially evil and not good. And that's what the, uh, the guiding parent theodicy was attempting to do was yeah. to offer a way to explain origin and how suffering can exist, but how God is still powerful and still good. And that's, that's a, theos, a theodicy problem that is going to continue. However, 
if you come to a theoretical understanding that says that God causes this, then yes, God is abusive and God is evil. And as David Bentley Hart says, the kingdom of God is but a dream uh, and, and living in the world is more like a nightmare. Yeah. We don't want that. Um, however, what I, would, what I would challenge here when it says the Lord causes grief, which different translations are going to say that differently, um, we have to question, are they trying to give a, us a theoretical, philosophical, theological perspective there? Or are they passing on an experience? And I think that's one of the problems when people come to Lamentations and go, this is systematic theology. Okay, you're going to leave with some headaches. Mm -hmm. If you're going, we're watching a story that has theological implications. Now we can uncover some of this, this different stuff. So I would, instead of going, the Lord causes grief, and that's an absolute, I'm going to use a big word here, ontological truth, uh, versus us going, that's how that woman experienced that, and this is what she said in response, and what does that tell us about the importance of the response, and then what we do with it, and then what, what that will mean by how God responds in unexpected ways. Okay, so how you how you interact with the book as a whole, it's not a dictionary, right? It's not an encyclopedia where we can go, okay, see here in verse 33, it says that the Lord causes grief. So therefore, God must be the source of all evil. Oh, that, that kind of sucks. Instead, what we have to do is go, what's the story telling us? Okay, they're existentially voicing that. What does that now mean within the context of the narrative and the poem? And then what else can we say happening in, in, the, in the poems that can help us put all of these pieces together? So I would just, if somebody, if somebody came to me and I said, why does suffering happen? So they said, well, the, you know, Lamentations 3 verse 33 says the Lord causes grief. I would go, no, no, no that's, not, that's not a philosophical claim. That's an existential right. expression. Allow those to be different, mm -hmm. right? Um, so approach, approach Lamentations more like you would approach a movie than a documentary. This is a response to something terrible that happens right. to these people when their whole world was destroyed, and this is how they respond to it. Yeah, right. All right, we are past 11.30, and so I am going to uh, close us down. Um, seriously, if you do have questions or thoughts or you want something elaborated on or you want to disagree with me because uh, here's the reality— I am not an expert on this, nor am I an absolute voice. These are my interpretations, so you have fair game to disagree with me on this. Um, feel free to email me, contact me, whatever. Um, I can't promise I'll get back to you right away, but I, I do want to be clear that continue the conversation. Um, don't, don't be satisfied with not fully grasping the things that are said, especially with this content. It's so important. So next week, we will try to see if we can find God in Lamentations. And I am looking forward to that. And then we'll be done with this, this long, boring conversation. <laughs> so I hope you all have a great week. And I look forward to seeing you again soon. Grace and peace. <laughs>